Hey there, it's Krista Scott Dixon from Stumptuous.com. In today's podcast, I'm talking to John Goodman, author of Ignite the Fire, The Secrets to Building a Successful Personal Training Career and the Personal Trainer Pocketbook. You'll learn more about John in this podcast, but I should mention that he currently runs the very popular and useful website, the Personal Trainer Development Center, or the PTDC, which you can find at www.theptdc.com. And now, here's my conversation with John Goodman. first things I'm curious about is actually your background, which you kind of allude to a little bit throughout your books, but tell me a bit about how you came to even write these books in the first place. Absolutely. Um, I do allude to it a little bit in the book, but I allude to it in terms of kind of knowing where your clients come from and, and putting yourself in their shoes, working out. So for me, I mean, I was like any other 17-year-old in Ontario going into university, not knowing what the heck I wanted to do. But um, I found myself to exercise science and study kinesiology. And in first year university, I, the university at the time, University of Western Ontario, offered two free personal training sessions. And so I did my first personal training session with the trainer at the gym. And immediately after the first one, I said, I want to become a personal trainer. By the time I was 18, I mean, I think it was about 20 days after my 18th birthday, I got certified as a trainer. And by second year university, I actually started working at the university gym. So I was a personal trainer at the University of Western Ontario. And from there, it was actually really cool because not only did I work 20 to 25 hours a week in the gym while studying kinesiology, but I was able to gain mentors. Uh, for example, Dr. Peter Lemon, who, um, for those in the precision nutrition world might know, he was the uh, PhD advisor to Dr. John Berardi. And so he kind of took me and taught me research as well and taught, told me a lot of the creatine stuff they were doing, protein synthesis stuff they were doing, which is pretty interesting. But what I also was able to do is there was a whole bunch of guys in the gym that were studying like their PhDs and exercise nutrition and stuff like that. And I would keep the gym open an hour or two at night from like 12 to 2 a.m. so they could work out. And they would allow me to just sit and listen to their conversations. And that was, I mean, if I got any education in university, that was kind of it. Uh, Just this cutting-edge research at the time. And this would have been like 2004, 2005. So there was lots of really cool stuff going on with protein supplementation and caffeine and and whatnot. After graduating university, I started training full-time in a gym called Body and Soul Fitness in Toronto. And um, that was actually where I ended up working my entire career. It was a growing organization. It was in an affluent area in Toronto. And and I took over the senior trainer position there relatively quickly. So I decided to write this book, Ignite the Fire, for mentoring and training, and training trainers, not knowing uh, where appropriate resources were in terms of teaching the soft skills of training, in terms of like figuring out how to get your clients to want to do the program. A lot of what they teach at, in the PN uh, certification, actually, a lot of that kind of material, but also the sales and the marketing aspects of training. And from that, um, the idea of that book and the idea of the website, the PTDC, again, focusing more on the soft sides of training, really took off. And, um, and it, it took me to where I am today. I'm unfortunately not working with clients, but... Uh, but helping to uh, work with trainers around the world, kind of get the word out for the greater good. So it's interesting that you uh, produced this book and then decided to revise and update it. So how much time was there between the first and the second edition? I decided to begin on the second edition of the book about two years after the first. 
because it's about four years after the first came out that the second came out. Mm-hmm. And then the second edition took, uh, was about a year and a half to get out once we decided to uh, to kind of take it on. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what prompted this? Because obviously it's a humongous amount of work, a huge time investment for you. Uh, what inspired you to update it? There were a couple things, really. Um, when I put out the first book, I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing first off. So, so... Uh, aesthetically, I didn't really like the first book. I didn't really like the cover. I didn't really like the interior layout. I thought the material could have been presented better. And so I wanted to revise that aspect of it. Um, there was actually a, a trainer in New York City, Joe Dowdell. I remember a word that he said to me, or a phrase that he said to me very early on was, he says, just get out whatever you want to get out. There's a reason that God invented version 2.0s. And, uh, and that kind of always stuck with me. So I always thought that I might want to do a version 2.0, but what really led to it was a couple of things. One, the fitness industry landscape has kind of fundamentally changed since I wrote the book. Um, CrossFit has emerged as, as a pretty major source, so I needed to talk about that. Additionally, small group training has kind of taken over um, from one-on-one training on a large, so I needed to really um, work that into the book. But more than anything, I've just learned a lot more. I mean, I've spent the last really three years traveling the world meeting some of the top gym owners and, and trainers um, and gaining their knowledge for not just training, but also for marketing, for sales, for that. So I wanted to incorporate quite a bit more of high-integrity lead generation because in a beautiful industry, um, there's a lot of people who operate with not such high integrity. But I feel like if a trainer can really build out fantastic systems for high-integrity lead generation, retention, improving adherence, then they're going to be unstoppable and they're going to do a lot of good. So I wanted to go back and, and kind of revise those sections and, and improve upon those sections quite a bit. And this is probably a good time to mention that you are indeed speaking to me from Brazil after going through Uruguay and heaven knows what other countries in your quest for world yeah. domination as you become right. quite a world traveler. Um, it, you know, it seems like you've really taken on this project of really gain, gaining experience by seeing the world quite literally. Well, and seeing different I mean, fitness is so different in different places in the world, but attitudes towards fitness and health and well-being is so different. I mean, people in Brazil, where I am in Rio right now, or in Uruguay up the coast where I was living for a couple of months, uh, they very much really work to live, not live to work, right? I mean, it's, it's a complete flip, a complete polar opposite of what we see in Toronto or New York City or wherever. And to see those mentalities, to see people who from 2 to 6 p.m. close their shop and go to the beach and play volleyball or paddleball every day. I mean, you just see everybody's healthier, everybody's happier, right? Um, people are just generally more energetic versus like, I'm going to go to the gym and pump weights at 6 a.m. because that's the only time I have to do it. And then the inevitable question comes up whereby is the fitness life that they're living adding stress to their life or taking stress away from them? That's such a profound question, and I was actually thinking before this talk about, in a, in a way, what a strange job a trainer is, right? That, <laughs> that I would go and see a person for an hour three times a week, and they would tell me to move my body. Like, if you kind of step back and think about that a little bit, it does seem a little bit odd, so I'm, I'm actually quite interested in your comparison here. And, I mean, what insights have you gathered besides the whole work to live versus live to work, uh, you know, from your travels about different perceptions of health, activity, movement, and so forth? Well, I think it's the, uh, I think it's the perception of health that changes. I mean, here, sure, like on the beach in Rio de Janeiro and Copacabana and Ipanema and that, um, there's a lot of muscle-bound men and women walking by in, in skippy bathing suits. But 
in most places, it's just generally healthy physiques, right? People don't like bodybuild. It's just everybody's kind of healthy. People are healthy because they like to be healthy versus more of kind of uh, almost, and I hate to say it, almost like a show-off mentality, whether people know it or not. There's this unconscious desire for, you know, perceived social support for for people needing to increase their well-being by thinking that somebody else thinks that they're good-looking. And, and I mean, when it comes to social support, right, I'm sure you know this just as much as anybody else, but our well-being is more dependent on perceived social support than actual received social support. So whether you actually think that I'm good-looking or not has almost no relevance to how good I feel. It's whether I think that you think that I'm good-looking. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to the fitness industry and, and the, uh, the willingness of people to selectively self-represent and, and show off, I mean, there's this joke, it's like the workout doesn't count unless you post it on Facebook. Like that kind of shit just doesn't happen here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's such an interesting uh, perspective. And I, I mean, I, I, I want to come back to this later because I do have some more questions around that. But let me just back up a second and talk about one of the innovative things that this book brings to the industry, which is really that there are lots and lots and lots of books on how to train, right? I can go to any website and read articles about how to train, what sets and reps should I use, what weights should I use, what exercise should I use, and all this kind of thing. Mm. There's much less on working in this industry and how to show up in this industry and think about this as an occupation and and as an occupation that comes with particular requirements, as well as an occupational identity, right? I mean, you start to become a trainer or become a coach in your own mind in a certain kind of way. And it, I think this is particularly interesting in personal training and coaching because we look at personal training as this sometimes this space of magical transformation, right? Like I'm going to go to a gym and then I'm not really sure what happens in between, but I know that when I walk out of there, it's, I'm going to be magically fixed and everything's going to be awesome and people will love me and like everything I've ever wanted will occur, right? So it's this sort of like right. Cinderella narrative about it, right? Um, and, but obviously... It's, and it's I, kind of like making money on the internet or, or like, have you ever right. seen, a, right. have you ever seen that, that South Park episode with the, the underwear notes? notes. Yeah. Right? It's like... Step one, steal underpants. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like step one, hire a trainer. Step two, question mark. Step three, have a six pack, you know? Like, exactly. <laughs> and by extension, my whole life will be even, you know, like more magically awesome, right? Every problem right. I've ever had will be solved because I have a six pack. <laughs> yeah. No, that's how it works. That's, that's how it works. That's As true. is my understanding, yes. But, you, you know, you call attention to the fact that this is a job and there are like all the same elements of jobs that everyone else has, right? Work hours, salary, getting clients, uh, working with Mm -hmm. team members. And so like talk about why that felt like an important subject to address. Uh, Training is a job. I think it was an important thing to address because a lot of trainers come into the job, you know, the the J-O-B, the career, whatever you want to call it, and – they enter in without pretty much any idea of how to train other people other than themselves. Even trainers who enter into the industry reasonably well-read, most of their research and stuff is going to be on how to train them. If they've had an injury, how to repair that. And the difference that comes about in training versus a lot of other jobs, I mean, in no job, in no service-based industry does somebody enter into the industry after any education that they've gotten without practical experience 
being good at the job, right? They don't know what to do. With training, even if, if you're like a 23-year-old who knows how to put on muscle for other 23-year-olds and deal with a knee injury because you had a knee injury, your first client might be a 67-year-old woman with arthritic fingers. And that, to me, is the biggest difference between uh, training and other industries and saying, okay, well, you're going to be thrown into the fire. But, and, and we don't expect you to know how to do everything, and so we can teach you all of these tactical skills, but the reality of you're still not going to have enough. So what's important to train trainers before they enter in the industry and what skills are important to give to them? It's not knowledge. It's, it's knowledge acquisition. It's, it's learning how to find the right types of things. It's learning how to research. It's learning how to talk to people and say, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out. It's very interesting. You mentioned the process of knowledge acquisition, and I think of it as learning how to learn because this is something I hear a lot with um, the coaches that we train at PN, a lot of them feel very anxious about knowing everything, right? I don't know everything. I don't know all the answers to the questions. And this makes me feel like an idiot. I feel very insecure. I don't want to ask for help. I feel like not knowing the answers makes me look inexpert and, and not legitimate. And mm-hmm. yet what you're, and what we point to and what, of course, you're pointing to as well is it's not really about what you know. It's how you know it and how you're able to apply it. Is that fair to say? I think that's very fair to say. Uh, I, I think that that's, that's about as an astute observation on that as possible. I think as an extension to that, additionally, it's, it's how you know and how to apply it, and then also when to know when you don't know, and when to know when it's beyond your means, and where to look. So, you know, I wrote, I wrote a book that was meant to train an industry when I was 25 years old. I was not, it, like, I mean, speak to anybody, right? I should not have fucking written that book. <laughs> but the reality of it is I knew that at that point I knew enough to help people entering into the industry. Mm-hmm. And I knew who the book was for and I knew who the book wasn't for. And I knew that, that there was nothing else out there. I mean, shit, if there was another book out there or there were other resources out there teaching that kind of stuff, I would have acquiesced to that in a heartbeat. But there wasn't. It didn't exist. And so... All that I did is I sat down and I said, okay, what do I know? Who is it that can really benefit from what I know? I'm going to produce something specifically for them. And I think the carryover to clientele with that is is huge and saying, okay, well, I'm a relatively new trainer. Well, maybe I shouldn't take on a client who has a lot of injuries. Maybe I'm not ready for that yet. And then being able to identify and say, well, I know enough to work with these types of clientele right now. Not to say that I'm not going to try to learn how to take care of other clients or learn how to work with clients who are more advanced or less advanced or whatever, but here's who I know who to work with now, right? Here's who I can help now with my knowledge base, and then kind of almost working upwards from that. You make an interesting point about this mismatch that often happens between the trainers and their clients, that, that often we are not the same people as the clients we see, and demographically, if you think about how the industry works and and how clients work, this is bound to happen, right? Because it's a young industry. It's generally skewed towards younger people. And what we've seen in our clients, at least at Precision Nutrition, is that half of them are over 35. There's a real skew towards being a little bit older, you know, so 40s, 50s, 60s, because at that age, things are starting to break <laughs> and yeah. metabolisms are starting to slow down. And you yep. also have the money to pay for personal training. So, I mean, it's, oh, a sure. it's an affordability it's issue. Yeah, yep. exactly. And so I think what you're really pointing at is 
this fundamental problem of the industry, or I mean, you can call it an opportunity, you can call it a problem, whatever, but that we are not always the same people as the clients we serve. And I think that's a really interesting tension that you, that you highlight really nicely in your book. I mean, can you draw that out a little bit more and talk about some of the opportunities there, perhaps? Are the opportunities? Sure. I think, uh, I think what's interesting is that we're not, we're, we're almost never the same people as we serve. I mean, not just we often are, like we're almost never the same people that we serve, but it's important to recognize that we're going through the same stages of change or we've already gone through the same stages of change as they have. So if you, and maybe like if you could link this below in your show notes or something, just Krochansky's model of change. I mean, you know it, right? Everybody who comes into the gym is kind of in a uh, stage where they're not quite sure whether they're going to stay or they're in this, they're in this method where it's going to be really easy to relapse. And so it's very important as a trainer to say, okay, when I first came into the gym, whenever that was, for me it was when I was 15 years old. When I first came into the gym, right, what did I feel? What were my motivating factors? What kept me in that gym long enough for me to be able to build up the intrinsic motivation to stay there? And then you get into motivating factors. You get into the differences between intrinsic, extrinsic motivation and saying, okay, well, the motivation for somebody to stay into the gym right now, well, they might need a little bit more token uh, uh, satisfaction. So they might need they might need a little bit more in terms of fist pumps, in terms of rewards. Um, but the types of rewards need to be very specific. And I hit on this in, in Ignite quite a bit of just uh, extrinsic rewards can actually have negative consequences on intrinsic motivation if you give them improperly. And so then it comes down to saying, well, how can I prepare for these people? And I think it's just getting to know your clientele. Like, what do they really want? Somebody comes into your gym, whoever it is, and says they want to lose five pounds. Nobody gives a fuck if they lose five pounds or not. What they care about is what that five pounds means to them. And for every single person, that might be different. Five pounds to one person might feel like they have confidence to approach their best friend and tell them that they've loved them for the last five years. Five pounds to somebody else might be that they're going to feel a bit sexier when they're around their husband and, you know, want to put on a dress and go on a cruise. Like, it's different for everybody, but those are the motivating factors. It's not five pounds. It's not, it's not generally these quantitative goals. It's, it's a matter of, um, of, of logic and how logic actually justifies benefits, right? So the benefit is... I want to feel like I have more confidence so I can approach that girl and get laid. Maybe. Whatever. And then the logic justifies. So logic says, okay, what are the logical steps for me to achieve this benefit? And I think as a trainer going into this, it's just a matter of being able to identify for whoever the client is, no matter what age group, demographic, what they want to achieve, it's saying, okay, well, they tell me that they want to lose 5 pounds, lose 10 pounds, run a 5K race, whatever it is. What does that really mean for them? And then how can I fit the training and fit the motivating factors inside of the training step by step by step to always go back to their actual benefit, their actual goal, and not to this um, kind of superficial quantitative measurement? I really like what you're saying here because this is obviously a much more client-centered model, right, as opposed to a coach-centered model. And the coach-centered model is what I always think of as like the coach hard-ass approach, right, where you come to me as a client and I just tell you 
what you're going to do or, or I yell at you right. or whatever. Um, and, and obviously there are lots of trainers out there who say, oh, you know, I don't motivate that way. I don't yell at people or anything like that. But at the same time, I think sometimes trainers have anxieties around, again, being good enough and knowing enough. And often it's difficult for them to step back, as you say, and do that listening, do that understanding, you know, really get into their clients' heads and grasp mm-hmm. what that five pounds means, as you, as you say. And you talk about this quite a lot in the book, which I think is really helpful. Um, so, I mean, what are some concrete strategies that trainers can actually use to suss out what their clients really need and really want and what lies underneath that five pounds or whatever? Well, first off, I just want to thank you for using the word sus. I don't think I've ever used that in a sentence, and I really enjoyed the way that it sounded. <laughs> the, uh, the, really, I mean, there's one concrete strategy that I always use, that I always advise people to use, that always works, so I don't have more than one. And the strategy is as simple as when you sit across from your client in the initial assessment or in, in the assessment every three months or however often you sit down with your client to reassess where they're at, where they want to go, you're in a position of power. Right. And I think the biggest mistake that a lot of trainers make initially with a client is they acquiesce or they relinquish their their power position with their client. And so it's a matter of asking them a question and understanding that if there's silence in a room, whoever is in power in that room is going to win, meaning that they're going to learn something about their combatant. And I'll, I'll say the client is a combatant here because these are much, these are very much like. If you study uh, Machiavellian principles and stuff like that from way back when, these are all things that kind of happened in the court. And that's where a lot of this information comes from. And so if there's a unspoken power differential in that room, whoever, if there's silence, whoever is in power is going to learn something about their combatant that they would not have otherwise learned. And so it's important then, once you're sitting across from a client, to never be the one answering questions, to always be the one asking questions and never be satisfied until you get the answer that you want. And so it's, a, it's as simple as you sit down with a client, you say, okay, what do you want to achieve? They give you a superficial goal like five pounds, I want to get a six-pack, whatever. And you just say, why? And be quiet. And once they say anything, you say, why again? And be quiet. And usually it takes saying why about three times and I always joke I, – I, I joke that I'm going to use this joke every single time in everything that I ever write. But if you make the room as awkward as it was when Luke found out that Leia was a sister in Star Wars, then you're going to learn what you want to learn. Because when people feel awkward and when people feel like um, it's their turn to talk, combine that with the power differential in the room, they're going to tell you what's really on their mind versus what they think that you want to know. And that's when you really learn. I mean, this works in social environments too, right? If you just want to like learn something about a girl that you like or something. But, uh, but in a trainer assessment or client assessment, you just sit down across from them and you just say why when they tell you what they want to achieve. And just keep asking that and keep being quiet and they're going to tell you everything you'd ever want to know. And then it's a matter of taking notes and identifying these, these kind of aha principles like what – then it's a matter of just practice and being able to pull out that one piece of information that's really emotional to that person. I, I feel like I want to tell everyone listening that this is like some next level shit right here, because if you can <laughs> sit with silence and awkwardness, I have a friend who says, 
I would rather be kicked in the stomach than endure social awkwardness, right? So I think mm. most of us kind of feel that way, especially in North America, where we just cannot tolerate uh, too much expression of emotions or awkwardness or, or any kind of deep like weirdness in the human connection, right? And so if you are someone who can learn to tolerate silence, and it will feel like an eternity, right? It might only be a second and a half, but it will feel like forever. Mm-hmm. Um, then as you say, what you can extract from another person is incredibly powerful because now you're not afraid of that awkwardness. Right. You're not afraid of that connection. So um, anyone who's an aspiring trainer here, definitely that was like a knowledge bomb right there. So write that one down and, and practice <laughs> because sitting and the with minute, silence is painful. Exactly. And the minute that somebody asks you a question, again, it, it, the silence is a huge aspect of it, but the silence isn't as powerful unless you maintain that position of power in the conversation. And the easiest way to lose that position of power is to have the other person start asking you questions. And so the minute somebody asks you a question, flip it around and ask them a question. Always be the one asking questions. And so if they were to ask you, okay, what type of training do you do? You flip around and you say, what do you want to achieve? And just always, always, always be the one asking questions. The second somebody says something like, oh, you know, what training do you do? Or why should I hire you? And you start telling them about your 15 certifications, you've lost. Like, like good luck making the sale. You might make it, but your chances go way down. And I think in a way, this actually takes the pressure off the coach to be Mr. or Ms. Awesome. Because Mm. I think often people worry about that, right? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Whatever. Uh, They worry about impressing their clients when that's actually not really the job that they're here to do, if I'm understanding you correctly. Well, and they're also not Mr. and Mrs. Awesome. Like, nobody is. I mean, <laughs> what what you do might be right for some people, might not be right for some people. Your job in a client assessment or in a sales meeting is not to sell the client. It's to figure out what, whether you're the right person for that client. And if you're not, I think it's important for you to say, you know what, I'm not the right person for you. And if you are the right person for them, then it's important for them to understand why you're specifically suited for them. And in order to do that, you need to learn everything about them first, and then you need to figure out how to show them based on your experience, based on your expertise, based on your client testimonials, that you're actually the person that's best suited for them. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's not, there's no like spin selling. I mean, I, I went, I used to read dozens and dozens of sales books of how to like trick people into buying shit for me. And then I had an epiphany one day that none of it fucking matters because you're not tricking anybody to buy anything. Right? You're convincing people to buy a product that you wholeheartedly believe in, which is yourself. It's as simple as that. And then it's just a matter of, are you right for me? Am I right for you? If so, then I need to sh- as succinctly as possible. In, in a sense, too, what you're getting at is that if I'm selling myself, I have to believe in what I offer. And I have to believe in the power of me to make a positive difference for this client, which sort of brings me to my next area of questioning, which is that I hear this a lot from coaches that, in fact, I would say about 95% of coaches I talk to feel some kind of insecurity about themselves, whether that's, I don't Mm -hmm. know enough, or I'm not fit enough. I'm not super ripped chiseled. I'm not this, I'm not that. I think almost everyone is walking around with some level of deep-seated insecurity about being good enough as a coach. And in the book, you talk a lot about how to create safety and comfort for clients in the gym who might feel new or might feel hesitant. And I think that's very, very key. What about coaches feeling comfortable Mm -hmm. in our own gyms? Uh, You know, because the pressure can be 
intense. Um, it's not just, you know, like an accountant just has to be a good accountant, right? But as coaches sure. and trainers, we often feel like we have to be quote unquote perfect in every single way. And so like, what advice might you give to a trainer who's wrapped up in that dynamic a bit? I, there are a couple pieces of advice. Some are more strategic, like day-to-day stuff, and some are more um, kind of hoo-hoo-y, like spiritual type things, uh, which I believe in both of them more or less the same. I'll, I'll get into more of sort of the tactical stuff first, but number one, I mean experience, right? Like you work with people, you get good results with them, you get more confidence. doesn't help new trainers who haven't worked with people yet, of course, but uh, that's the one thing. And, and anybody listening, it just – it there's nothing to do to really replace experience and, and working with clients. And if there's anything you can do at the beginning of your career to get experience with as many clients as possible right off the bat, do it. You know, I always advise news trainers to work at big box gyms, for example, and just, just work with as many clients as possible. Don't worry about, uh, don't worry about getting a lower hourly pay or anything like that. Maybe the management's going to mistreat you, whatever it is. If they're going to give you tons of clients right off the bat, when you're a young trainer, take it. There's nothing else that's better than that. In terms of actually feeling more confident around each client themselves, though, it it comes down to um, almost like positive affirmation type stuff. And if you've ever watched like Tony Robbins or um, – I mean Tony Robbins is kind of the guru when it comes to this thing. But shit, stand in front of a mirror and tell yourself that you're awesome at your job three times. I mean the benefits that that has – it's actually really, uh, really powerful. I mean, I used to, before I would go into a sales meeting, for me, my like trigger, everybody kind of has a trigger. For me, my trigger is just to beat my left chest with my fist. I mean, it just pumps up my energy. It makes me feel good. And I, and I can feel like I can take over the world. So, I mean, really just like pump my left chest. I feel great. I'm energetic. I'm ready to go. I feel like I'm on top of the world. You look into the mirror, you're like, I'm the fucking man. And then you walk into the sales meeting. And, I, I mean, you realize that you're just, you're just going to do well. You're going you're gonna to talk about things in the right kind of way when you do that kind of stuff. Um, the final note, I guess, on this point is, is just for me to reiterate, I, I think what's been said a number of times is just nobody knows what they're doing. And in this age of smoke and mirrors and self-representation online and comparing your bloopers to somebody else's highlight wheels online, um, it's, it's getting harder and harder to see that. But I will be the first to tell you, as somebody who's, I, I guess, made a career of training trainers and writing books about everything from training to online marketing to traveling the world, like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. Um, that's fine. Like everybody's kind of making it up as they go along. If somebody feigns confidence, then understand that they are probably less confident than you are. What people brag about, particularly online, but the easiest way to find out what somebody is unconfident about, either if you're talking to them or online, is to see what they brag about. Because people brag about things that they need the perceived social support for. And just just understand that. Understand that, I mean, if somebody else sounds like they really know what they're doing, um, they probably don't really. <laughs> I mean, there's just so many unknowns. It's just, can you do a good job with this client? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, then 
make them know that you can do a good job with that client. That's such uh, such wonderful wisdom. I love this idea that no one knows what they're doing. It it really is a little bit of a collective scam. We're all just sort of bumbling our way through. <laughs> so you've blown our cover on this. <laughs> well, I remember seeing uh, Michael Gerber, who's who's written like the E Myth and a bunch of best selling books. I've actually never read a book by him. I never knew anything about him. And I saw him speak at an event. It was a very expensive like entrepreneur event that I happened to get tickets to. And he stands up, and he was the last speaker. He was the headliner, and he stands up. He has no notes. He has nothing, right? Like everybody else had this fancy slide presentation, whatever. He's like, he's like this 80-year-old guy with a straw hat. He walks up. He's holding a microphone. If you ever see a speaker hold a microphone, you know they're going to be good because they're old school. You know, they don't have the like lapel mic or whatever. And so he stands up and he looks at the audience. And the first thing he does is he's silent for about 10 seconds. And he just scans the audience. And he smiles at a couple people. And again, this goes back in like establishing a power position, right? Nobody talked during his presentation. He took control of the room through silence. And then first thing he says was, a lot of people here probably gave you a lot of tactics and, and you know, ways to, to market better, use social media better. He's like, I'm not going to tell you any of that. He's like, I can't tell you anything in 45 minutes. It's going to make any kind of difference. I'm going to give you one piece of advice, though. I'm just kind of making this up as I go. Don't you realize you can do that too? And that was it. Like his whole presentation was pretty much about that. And, and that just resonated so much with me. I mean just this idea of this, this 80-year-old I mean, guru who's written more best-selling business books than almost anybody else out there. And he was the first to admit that all of the other presenters who were New York Times bestsellers, you know, uh, uh, what do they call them? Um, thought leaders, which is like the worst term ever. Like if anybody ever calls me a thought leader, I'm just going to block them. You know, they're, they're quote unquote thought leaders. And, um, and he's just like, all of these people are perpetuating a lie. Nobody knows what the hell they're doing. Become comfortable with that and make up your shit as you go. I love that. That is, that's, that's incredibly powerful and also a bit freeing. And it kind of leads me to my next question, which is, changes in the industry. Now, I've been around a little longer than you have. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was actually reading your your piece on how the the new rules of lifting series was such a, a profound shift in so many ways. And I definitely agree with you. And it, But it also made me think back to the first book that I got on training in the mid-80s, which was uh, a wider, like the, the Wider Brothers book on, um, it's called something like Super Shaping the Female Physique. And I think it, like, it even featured Corey okay. Everson and some of the really, like it was women's bodybuilding when women's bodybuilding was still an aspiration that an average woman might have right before it became mm-hmm. a bit more of a subculture, um, a little more extreme. And so there's been an interesting ebbs and flows in, in women's training and all kinds of training. And so I'd be curious to know your thoughts about how this industry has changed, especially since, as you say, we don't know what we're doing because a lot of the jobs that we're doing weren't invented six months ago or a year ago or five years ago, right? So how could we possibly know what we're doing? So you know, I'd, be, I'd be curious just from your perspective, what you have noticed as shifts, I guess, for you, that would be the last 10 years or so. Yeah, I mean, well, first I'll, I'll take you, I mean, you, you're going back to the 80s of the book talking about female weightlifting. I'll go back to 1897. Uh, I was going through, do you know who Chad Landers is? Mm-hmm, yep. Okay, so Chad Landers is like the nicest guy in fitness. Like, like him and Raj Law and John Eric Kalamato are going to have like a battle out for like the nicest guy in fitness. And it's going to be like a smile battle. Anyway, uh, 
I was in his house, and he has a collection of old bodybuilding books. And we picked up a book that was written in 1897, and that book transferred the English to, like, modern-day English. And that book could have been written on the shelves of Chapters of Indigo or Bones and Noble today. It, it talks about the importance of posture. It talks about the importance of weightlifting for females. I mean, it was pretty much the same advice that is given today in 2015. And this book was written in 1897. It's by a guy named William Blakey. And, uh, and so, I mean, nothing has changed, right, in terms of kind of what we know. I mean, there's, there's new physiology and stuff like that. But these ideas of arguing whether women should lift weights or not lift weights, I mean, it's just silly. Anyway. Um, going back to the last sort of 10 years of what I've seen change, I think the biggest note when it comes to fitness professionals and fitness careers and making money in fitness and that kind of thing is understanding that we're in the age of the coach. Information in and of itself is not valuable. If anything, information is damaging because there's just so much of it and there's so little regulation of information, meaning that Nobody really knows whether it's true or not. Nobody really trusts it anymore. And nobody knows what the quote-unquote best information to listen to or not. And so the role of the coach has fundamentally changed. The role of the coach is not to bring information to the client or to bring information to the website anymore. The role of the coach is to make sense, almost act as a concierge, is to make sense of all of the information and to say, okay, here is exactly what you need to know. Right? Here is exactly what's right for you. And I think that's where the industry is going. It's not so much in saying, okay, here's all of the stuff that's kind of cool. It's saying, okay, well, my job is almost to to take everything that's out there, make sense of it so you don't have to, and give you only what's specific for you. I love this because we are drowning in information. We are drowning in everything it feels like these days. I, I, I talk to so many people who say, I'm just overwhelmed, I'm swamped, I'm whatever metaphor you want to use to convey this idea of drinking from the fire hose. And Mm. so really, I think what you are proposing in your books, which is so powerful, is this different model of a trainer as fundamentally human, right? Someone who can connect with other people, but also as a filter and a prioritizer and someone that protects me as the client from this onslaught of the modern world in a way, right? You, you filter and tell me what I need to know when I need to know it. And you tell me it with love and you guide me to actualizing what I want to actualize. So I, I really like this figure that you have created of what a trainer or a coach could be. I think I need you to write my sales copy for the book moving forward. <laughs> I think I might – we'll talk afterwards. I think I might just hire you to do that. No, I mean you, you, you hit the nail on the head and you, you articulated it better than I could have ever, ever articulated it. Um, and, and, but also, I mean, from, so that's from a, from a kind of feel-good standpoint, right? Like what, is, what should a trainer do? From a financial standpoint, like how do trainers make more money, right? The average salary for a trainer is $35,000 in the U.S. That's not enough money to make a living. How do you make a living in this industry? It's from the trainer's standpoint, it's understanding that your word is actually the most valuable asset that you have. It's not training clients. It's the fact that you're a trusted source for information. And so there's two elements of that that are inherently valuable. One element is how can you make as many people as possible trust you and listen to your word? 
because distribution networks are what's going to be increasingly valuable in the next five or ten years. The second element of that is understanding that as a fitness professional, you are known as a trusted source for anything lifestyle, health, or fitness-oriented, which means that commission programs, for example, so whether you want to produce your own stuff is is another conversation altogether, but commission programs for everything from fitness equipment to health food to books to whatever are only going to grow because it's becoming increasingly harder for advertisers to reach target populations as, as uh, interest groups become increasingly separate. It's becoming almost impossible to like put out an ad and reach everybody interested or potentially interested in the product. So what these companies are increasingly turning to are commission-based programs. And the commission-based programs often work on a very small scale, right? You can, you could potentially have 15 people who are really interested in something, and you can make a fair amount of money by just being that almost like filter for them and saying, hey, you want to buy a treadmill, here's, here's the best treadmill. And just like, like any trainer, I think, needs to take a second and just start to comprehend just how powerful this is that if you want to really make a career out of this fitness thing, whether you want to do something online or not, or, it doesn't really matter. But understand that your word, your reputation, um, your recommendation is the most valuable asset you have, bar none. I really like this thing that you're getting at as well. This, I mean, I, I wrote down trusted source for information, and I underlined the word trusted, right? Because trust is something that we all have to earn. We don't just get it by virtue of having a degree or whatever. Um, and it's a long game. We are playing the long mm-hmm. game. And I like even in the title of your book, you've got, you know, the secrets to building a successful personal training career, right? Not a job, right. but a career. And this is a long game that requires consistent input into it and constantly refining how you play it and playing it with some serious integrity, if I'm understanding you correctly. And and not going for the quick win. I mean, there's, there's a section on how to make more money as a trainer, and I talk about commission referral programs quite a bit. Um, and I talk about multi-level marketing programs and, and supplement reselling and stuff. And I very, 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 very strongly advised to um, read every bit of fine print and independent research for anything you want to recommend, especially when it comes to things like supplements, because um, you could you could probably sell supplements. I mean, especially with a multi-level marketing program, but but even without, you could probably sell supplements and make a couple thousand bucks without too much trouble, which is very appealing to a lot of people. But so what? Like, what happens next? Is is that enough money to? To paraphrase a quote by my father, um, are you going to make enough money to fundamentally change your life and to set you up for the long term doing something like that? And if you're going to risk your reputation, it better fucking change your life. And if it doesn't have the – if it's not something that's going to pretty much set you up so you're never going to need that reputation again, which (laughs) is almost like 99% sure going to happen, um, then then it's a no right away. And uh, there are a lot of programs for trainers that seem really appealing because they'll give you a couple hundred or a couple thousand bucks without very much work. But the reality of it is you're losing what you're giving away for that is your number one asset, which is your reputation, which is your trust. I feel like this information is so valuable, not just for trainers who are, or people working in the industry, but also clients. Because clients, I think, maybe listening to this or potential clients – 
hopefully they'll now start to understand the pressures that act on trainers and, and hopefully it will help them make some informed choices or understand what questions they might be asking their trainer, what they might expect of their trainer as they themselves go to gyms or, or hire trainers or whatever. So I feel like these kinds of ideas really help both sides of the equation get a really solid understanding of what's happening. And so let me just wrap this up and ask my very last question. Let's end on a happy note, which is what yeah. <laughs> what excites you about the future direction of this? I mean, maybe your own projects or something that's interesting to you or where the industry is going. What is exciting to you right now? What's most exciting to me is just how many unbelievable, good, cool, I mean, just, just people are out there in the fitness industry. I I mean, my career started and my entire working career was at a relatively small boutique gym. We had two locations um, in Toronto and in, in, uh, in, in Forest Hill in Toronto. And I really didn't know anybody outside of the industry. I mean, I was never one that read a lot of blogs. I was never one that went to a, a ton of conferences really far away and stuff like that. But since starting the PTDC and since really, I mean, traveling the world, like I've been I've been in so many corners of the globe meeting fitness professionals and stuff. And through the website, I mean, reaches, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people every month, millions a year and and all over the world. And the fact that there are just such amazing people in literally every corner of the globe is, is just really cool. And we often hear about the bad apples in the industry. We often hear about, you know, the low integrity stuff, the sensationalistic marketing and all of that kind of thing. But, Rest assured, I mean, there are millions of just millions. I don't know millions. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of just really salt-to-the-earth, just good freaking people that are working their butts off every single day, um, making a difference in their communities in every corner of the globe, from rural India to New Zealand uh, to all over Europe and North America and, and Latin America. I love this. And it's certainly been my experience as well. I have not traveled as extensively as you have. But for example, I went to the Asia Fitness Conference last year. And you're exactly right. I mean, people came from all over. They had such great energy. They wanted to help. They wanted to serve. They wanted to make a difference. And something I tell our coaches is that often you're the first person that has ever listened to your client, right? Or believed in them or supported them or said, you can do this, right? A lot of our clients are surrounded by unsupportive, actively sabotaging environments. So as a coach or trainer, you might be the first person that has ever really taken the time to help someone in a fundamental way. And that's such a a powerful responsibility. And as you say, these people are worth it. Like these, these folks doing this work are exactly the right people for this work right? They, yeah. they believe in it and they want to do it and they love it. Yeah. And I mean, the, I, have gone back to the talk that you gave at the, uh, at the PTDC conference a couple of years back. And I mean, just the, the thoughts and, and the strategies that you gave on that same point of like, look, you're the first person that these people often meet and, and how to work with people who unfortunately might have sabotaging environments. I mean, not just with other fitness professionals, but at home an unsupportive spouse, uh, family members, uh, friends, whatever. Uh, I, I think that if there's an area of opportunity, um, it's what it's what you're doing as well in terms of helping people kind of overcome those types of environments as well. 
Well, I have to thank you for creating this tremendous resource. Um, I'll mention this in the show notes, but it is two books. And so one is more of a, an in-depth guide. The other one is like a little handy, I don't know, what would you call it, like a pocket book? It's like a little FAQ, it's- but in book form. Yeah, it's a. It, I mean, it's called a pocketbook, a handy reference. So it's kind of both. Uh, what it is 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 it is actually it. It's. Kind, I mean, it's obviously edited and, and stuff quite a bit, but it is my FAQ. So in the past two years, I mean, I've answered an ungodly amount of emails from trainers in every corner of the world of, of every question they've had of like, you know, how do I overcome this objection? To how do I get clients? To should I sell supplements? To um, you know, maybe different ones like my client canceled and hasn't responded to my email for two weeks. What do I do? I don't want to make it awkward. So, so everything from like topical questions to more nuanced type situational questions. And, uh, and what I did is I, I started writing up really thorough answers to each of these questions as much as I could. And then for questions I didn't know the answer to, I reached out to somebody who was an expert in that aspect of training and got them to answer it. And, um, what that pocketbook is, is it's a compilation of the answers to every single question a trainer might ask. And it's just an, it's, it's a reference. You can read it start to finish, but the idea is you keep it with you at all times. And when you have a question, you, you go to the book, you flip open to the table of contents, you say, okay, number 47, you go to that page, and, uh, and you get your answer. And I also like, as you say, that you have little tidbits from other people, too, because I think sometimes in this industry we want to be competitive, right? We think, oh, I'm the only one that can answer this or, you know, but but in your case, what you've done is you've drawn in the wisdom of all kinds of other people. So there's all these little nuggets through both of the books, little tips and tidbits and experiential advice and so forth from all different kinds of people, which is really fun as well to get that collection of perspectives. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll be the first person to admit that I really don't know all that much. I mean... I kind of joke when I started the PTDC years back that, like, I figured out really early on that I maybe in a good year have two good ideas. And so if I can find 25 other people who have two good ideas, then we'll have at least one good idea every week of the year. And that was... I like how you've done the math. <laughs> you've done the arithmetic on who has the ideas. It's awesome.